You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, good morning. I invite you to take a copy of God's Word, hopefully that you have. And if you're still yet without, turn to 1 Samuel. If you're without a, a journal guide or you were gone last week, I see the piles dwindling. That's great. Please use those. There's some left. If you need to get up and get one for our study through that, please do so. But turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Last week was sort of our overview of this book. And here this week we get into chapter 1 itself. Before we get there, on your way to 1 Samuel, I've got a picture to show from last week. This is from Tatum. I don't think Tatum is with us today. I haven't seen him, but uh, Tatum was drawing. Can you guess what this is? There is a sling. No, he's not playing tennis. There's a sling there with a pebble and somebody bigger with a shield. And I even love how I think Tatum got the, maybe the Israelites, I don't know which one, or the Philistines on the hills over there. It's pretty good, pretty good depth in this picture. But we looked at David and Goliath kind of as a um, template, really, for the book of 1 Samuel and this, this lowly David who won this battle. Not David and his stone. Yes, it went through the eyes and it did did what God intended, and so by God's strength, David defeated this giant, and so we see God's strength, not by our might, but by his throughout this book. So I appreciate Tatum doing that, and kids, whatever you draw from illustrations, as you hear me go along, and as we read this passage, you'll, you'll get some picture and some images here, and feel free to draw those and hand those to me. Well, let's come to God's Word. We're going to read chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 20, I really we're coming back, you know, Romans, we're used to a couple verses maybe at a time here and there. Um, here we're in bigger sections, so let's listen to God's word before us today. There was a certain man of Ramathiam, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. And the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. 
As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning, worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Let's pray once again. Lord, as we come to this word written uh, on the pens of human authors, inspired though, brought along, carried along by your spirit as we've just heard. So Lord, as we come to this word, it is no mere word. It is your word. It is a preserved word for us. And I pray that we would pay attention to it like a light shining in the the darkness, maybe in our own darkness and our own dimness, may you shine the light of your word to bring about what you intend through it today for each one of us gathered here. Give us ears to hear, Lord, where we, where we drift off and where our mind is filled with 50 other things, maybe things yet to get done, things we're troubled by, things of this life. Bring us back, reel us back to your word to hear from you today. And I just pray for your help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin this study and looking through the book of 1 Samuel, I want to start by just asking, just having read through all these verses, verses 1 through 20, why are these here? Why is this here? Why such a long account? Not so much, again, about Samuel, but about his mother Hannah. I mean, if the book, last week we talked about the book being kind of split up into these three parts. There's Samuel, and there's Saul, King Saul, then there's David. And why not just say Samuel was born and move on with the book? Why spend so much time here on Hannah, Hannah's rival wife here, Penina, her, her husband, this trip to Shiloh, you got Eli, and then her prayer. And, and a prayer we'll see in chapter 2. And I think the writer, and again, ultimately God, who inspires this work and this word, wants to teach us something right out of the gate in this book of 1 Samuel. And to teach what I think is at least one of, if not the major theme of Samuel, this theme, you see it on the front of your bulletin, not by might does man prevail. Or to turn it positively, our strength and might comes from the Lord. And so we look to the Lord. David did not win Goliath because of his might. It was the might of the Lord. And I think we see this theme throughout. So this first account here, where we're at, takes us to the depths really of Hannah's despair, her trouble, 
and then takes us to the one whom we can bring all of our troubles to. And so I don't think the story, it's not here by accident or just kind of some filler material. We need something for chapter one. Let's just fill it in with some background, this sort of thing. It sets a tone. And I think the tone it sets, if we pay attention, it's, it's a daily tone that ought to sound from our lives. This tone of dependence on God, looking to Him. There is no other. So our text here, if you're kind of into outlines, seems I'm at least breaking up in three parts here, verses 1 through 8. We're going to look at Hannah's trouble. There's trouble. We're going to look at that, verses 1 through 8. Verses 9 through 18, Hannah's prayer, kind of a focus on her praying to the Lord and, and Eli's part, part of that, so 9 through 18. And then really kind of briefly at the end, 19 through 20, the Lord's remembrance. We've got Hannah's trouble, Hannah's prayer, and then 19 through 20, the Lord's remembrance. So let's start back, look at verses 1 through 2 here, where it says there was a certain man of Ramathiam, Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim. I mean, here we are. We're back in the Old Testament with these names, aren't we, in places? Whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penina. And here it is. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And so we're introduced. We kind of get the family setting here of this story. And we're first introduced to Elkanah. Now, Caleb's got one map for me today back there. And we're again, we're in the land of promise, the land of Israel in here. And this Elkanah is his hometown is this Ramathiam Zophim. And just to say, nobody's exactly sure where this is. Now, a lot of. Now, here's Shiloh. We mentioned Shiloh. You see Shiloh. Here's Bethlehem. In between, right about in here, is Jerusalem, right up in here. Many think that uh, Ramathim Zophim or, or Rama would be a shorthand is somewhere in this, this area. In fact, if you go to like a Google map, you can find, I uh, forget the town's name, but the tomb of Samuel, where they think Samuel is buried, maybe this hometown. Others think maybe somewhere out, it's somewhere in this region, out on the western hills near the coastline here, maybe that's where this Ramathayim uh, was. Some would say that. And they would point to a New Testament name which you've heard of, Arimathea. Ever heard of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea? Like Bible trivia. Remember, his tomb was the one that they put Christ in to, to bury him after his death on the cross and which he rose from. Arimathea. So some think Joseph of Arimathea was maybe the same as where Samuel's from, somewhere west here of Shiloh out here. There's your geography for the day, your map for the day. Uh, nobody's quite certain, but I tend to lean towards the Arimathea. We'll see how it goes as we study and study into this book, how we go along. But that's maybe placement. You get an idea there. We're also given the family lineage, and I won't pronounce them all again, but we kind of have this lineage. And if you would, don't go, you don't need to go there, but First Chronicles 6 gives us the background that this family is really part of the branch of the tribe of Levi, the Kohathite branch of the tribe of Levi. And so if you think back and remember of all the tribes, the tribes connected to the tabernacle and the temple is the tribe of Levi. And so even Samuel and Elkanah here, Samuel's dad, this family group is tied to this service of the Lord, service around the tabernacle. And interestingly, Samuel's going to eventually serve there. So it 
kind of maybe sets that tone as well. Maybe if you were reading this and at the time of writing, you'd put those things together more, more easily. But in verse 2 here, we've got a familiar situation for us in the Old Testament, and that is Elkanah's two wives, Hannah and Penina. We might ask here very quickly, does the Bible support this multiple wives? Why do we see this other places? Does it support that? Does it support polygamy? One commentator, his first name's Robert, but Youngblood, he notes this. He says, going back to the beginning, Genesis 2.24 gives us a singular Man shall be joined to his wife, singular, not wives, and, and Adam and Eve. And there's this idea of one flesh, not two and three and four and five flesh. And so we've got that idea. He also, but he goes on to say, he says, although polygamy is never explicitly condemned in Scripture, think about this, its complications and unsavory results are everywhere apparent. And that's what we see in this account Think of it, as more wives are taken, do you ever see positive results? Is this ever a a marriage seminar built on multiple wives seems to be a good thing in Scripture? We never see that really going in a good place. And yet, we acknowledge God is still sovereign and He works, and He even works through multiple wives here. But again, I don't think it's His creation intention, His will in that matter. So in this case, Penina's got children, sons and daughters. Hannah has none. And so by, even by verse 2, we're already getting a sense of what's ahead. And with a few of these characters introduced and the problem before us, so let's head to Shiloh, verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Shiloh was really before Jerusalem and the temple and And that central point, Shiloh, was that point. This was God's dwelling place among the Israelites. It's where the the ark, we're going to see here later on, where the ark of the covenant was kept. And so we're introduced to to Eli and also his two sons, Hophni, Phinehas. And these guys are wicked men. They're worthless. The Bible calls them worthless men. But we'll get to them more in chapter 2. They're just kind of their names are put up here. But we're going to see more of their lives a little later on. But year by year, Elkanah takes his two wives up to Shiloh, presumably maybe, I don't know, three times, would seem uh, Jewish tradition, three times a year, to worship the Lord of hosts here at Shiloh. But when the minivan comes to Shiloh containing Elkanah's family, it is not one happy family, is it, when they depart and get out of the van at Shiloh. Uh, Let me read verses 4 through 8 and give you a flavor of this inner family tension going on. So verse 4, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. This is not a one-time thing, is it? Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So Elkanah gives out portions to his wives. Presumably, these are portions of the sacrificed 
meet. And so some goes to Panina and all her sons and daughters. And uh, one commentator just writes a kind of a funny story on this. You know, Panina is giving out her food and, yeah, here's some more food. And the daughters are saying, you know, why not? Why doesn't Hannah have, you know, all the, where's her sons? Where's her? Well, she doesn't have any. And kind of this hilarious, you can get a sense of this, this scene going on here. But Elkanah gives Hannah a, the ESV at least says a, a double portion. It could be a special portion. Um, the, the wording's kind of hard to understand. Double, special, uh, maybe one of your translations says a worthy portion to Hannah. We find out why in verse 5. Number one, Elkanah loved her. So, almost presume he didn't love Penina, which sets up its own, again, trouble of two wives. Here he loves one, maybe not the other, but you've got this rivalry going on. And then number two, we see this, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. And here we're not five verses, really, verse five, five verses in, and we come face to face with, this is a precious and yet sometimes hard reality to grasp. Not once here, twice, just I think to make sure we see this, not once but twice, we read that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. So even the womb is not outside the sovereign control of the Lord. Whatever Hannah's issue was medically or otherwise in her inability to have children, The Bible here points us to the Lord Himself. In fact, Hannah herself points us in this direction later on when she prays in chapter 2, verse 6. She herself prays and she says, The Lord kills, this is verse 6, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. So John Piper writes about this. He says, Hannah is not exaggerating when she generalizes from her experience to the sweeping statement that the Lord kills and brings to life. She is simply acknowledging, as Job and Jacob did, that this is what it means for God to be God. God's providence extends to this. Life is in His hands. Piper brings out some other instances in Scripture. Listen briefly. Job, we've been reading through that on the Bible, the, through the Bible plan in two years, and we've come to the book of Job, and think of Job's loss, and what does Job say? He says, the Lord gave, thinking of his lost family and kids, and all of what he had, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And he responds, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be the Lord. Jacob, Jacob, think of Rachel, Leah, Jacob responds, Rachel has a plea for children, Give me children. Jacob responds, he says in Genesis 30, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Or Moses speaks God's words in Deuteronomy 32, saying this, See now that I, even I, says the Lord, the God, I am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I admit, these can be really sensitive areas of God's sovereignty, especially in, in, in the context and the thought of a closed womb. But I, I don't think we're helped here by kind of downplaying God's sovereign hand in all things and saying, well, it's not really God's, you know, you know he's not really behind that. 
something else. God is almighty and his hand is almighty because also we can trust he is what? Holy, he's righteous, he's good, and so he's trustworthy, controlling all things, handling all things, and so we can look to him. And we can look to him no matter the trouble or the trial of the day. And the trial had come and the troubles had come here for Hannah with her rival wife, Panina. In verse 6, Panina provokes her bitterly, or you might, you've got the word grievously, to irritate her because of this Lord, the Lord closing her womb. And in verse 7, as we read, year by year, as often as they went up to Shiloh, so much that Hannah would weep and not eat. And just take a second to get a sense of the despair and the trouble and trial of Hannah. Year by year, she's got to go up with this woman. It's not just once, but year by year, and she hears it. Let alone she's got her own issues and her own, whether or not Pina was there or not, just telling her all this truth again. But here's Hannah dealing with her, her barrenness. And it's a trial. And there's this drumbeat of Panina as well. But then there's her husband, Elkanah. Poor Elkanah. He, he tried. He, he gave her the double portion, special portion, the worthy portion, whatever that is. But, but aren't these you know, words of comfort? I was laughing with Hannah talking about this last night when, when Elkanah goes to his wife. I, I know you're childless and you got, you know, there's no children, but... I mean, what about me? I'm, I'm worth more than ten sons. Look at who you got as a guy. Let's just start the marriage seminar this week saying, guys, probably not a good way to encourage your, your wife. Hey, look at me. Look what you, you know, I know you got trials, but look what you got. You might want to say that, but um, poor Elkanah. He was, he was trying. It didn't work so well for him. It didn't really help. And so... Verse 9 then, in her deep despair and grieving, not even a husband can help this Hannah. Where does she go? Where do you go when trouble comes? And I I wonder if she's not gone to this place year by year, but in verses 9 through 18, we find Hannah going where we all need to go, whether it's a trial or whether it's a sunny day out. She goes before the Lord in prayer. So look then again at verses, let's read them as a group here, 9 through 11. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. I mean, the, the narrator here is helping us get a sense. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So there's Eli. Perhaps he's in the distance here. He's seated by the temple of the Lord. But in the near frame, we see Hannah. And Hannah is praying and weeping. One way to translate verse 10 is she was bitter in soul. If, if you remember our study through Ruth, Mar. Mara, like Naomi and Ruth, who wanted to be called Mara. But here, though Hannah was Mara, bitter in soul and weeping deeply, what was she doing with her wounded soul? She was praying. She was bitter. 
She was grieved, alone, hurting, and she prayed, and she sought the Lord. And maybe, I don't know, I don't know to, to fault Hannah here, I want to be careful with that, but maybe to give the prayer a little extra oomph, I'm not sure, maybe she made this vow in verse 11. If you will indeed, you know, she's not sure if this, maybe this vow will work. If you will look on your servant. So there's a submissive posture to the Lord, your servant, and yet there's this vow. And, and with this vow, near the end of verse 11, we see that the vow deals with that, that no razor shall touch his head. And that's a clue to us here that this is a Nazarite vow that she's making of her son. A, a vow for one to be set apart, to be holy unto the Lord. It involved not cutting the, head, the hair and it involved, importantly also, no strong drink, nothing of the grapevine. That's interesting as we come to Eli thinking she's drunk. The, the vow just said, you know, my son shall have nothing of, of that. And it's this kind of vow. And we might ask here, in terms of a vow, I think we, we looked at this in, in the book of Judges as well, is this, is this effective is this a, you know, 10 steps of prayer? Is this maybe how we ought to pray? If we make a vow that God's more likely to answer the prayer, kind of, kind of bargain with God. And we know he would answer this prayer, but is this instructive for us? And I, I would just say kind of a general principle, anytime we try to manipulate God in our praying, we're, what are we more concerned with, our will than his? When we say, if you'll just do this, I mean, this, is, this must take place, and I'll do anything for it. I think we're not acknowledging, Lord, thy will be done. That's part of it, to have that principle. So, on the whole, not good to barter with God. But if you do make a vow, then you better keep it. I think we said that as well in the book of Judges. If you make a vow, unless it's going to cause you to sin further, like in the case of Jephthah, and the daughter coming out, you can look that up later. If we do make a vow, we better keep it. Hannah, she was in a place of despair, seemingly beside herself here, and, and God would use this vow in Samuel's life. But again, I think a general practice, we do well, be cautious, be reserved when it comes to a praying with, I will do this. But if so, then be ready to follow through on that. Not, and again, not as a way to kind of manipulate and strong arm and, and get God to do our, our will. We want to say, your will be done. Well, the camera pans now uh, to Eli, back from Hannah to Eli, and Eli is watching this woman pray. Look at verses 12 through 14. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli speaks to her. He said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, Eli might have been quite off. We know he's off. We, we know as we're reading this, that's not the case. But remember the times and remember Hophni and Phinehas. I think one commentator brought this out. These, these worthless characters are around. And what would worthless characters do? Probably invite unsavory women as well to be around. And, and the eating and the drinking had concluded and and so it's probably not wrong for Eli to presume that maybe in the past there's been a lot of drunken women around. Here's another one. What are you doing here? And one brought out, why is he so concerned? And he ought to be concerned about his sons, that whole idea. But that's, we'll, we'll maybe look at that later on when we get to them. 
But he does see Hannah's lips moving in such a way, you've got in verse 12, her lips moved. The wording there can, can also mean they, they were kind of trembling or, or quivering, maybe has that idea. And so uh, Matthew Henry writes, he says, perhaps in this degenerate age it was no strange thing to see drunken women at the door of the tabernacle. So putting you in the context of the setting, this was perhaps a regular sight. To which then Hannah replies in verse 15, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So Hannah replies, reverently, I think, not me, my Lord, or your servant. She's reverent to Eli's kind of accusation here. Instead, she explains she's not a daughter of wickedness, even though Eli's sons are going to be described in the same way. They're worthless. They're wicked. Of Belial would be the word there. Uh, Youngblood notes here of her pouring, uh, pouring herself too many drinks No, that wasn't the case. She had been pouring out her soul to the Lord. It's really a prayer we find in in many of the Psalms. uh, Her prayer of pouring out her soul before the Lord. Psalm 55, verse 2, David says to God, Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. Psalm 102, it's entitled this way, A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So this is not just kind of a one-off place in Samuel, and we've got Hannah dealing with with trouble and pouring out her soul. We see this in the Psalms as well. And I don't think here uh, Hannah is charging God with with a wrongdoing or accusing Him, somehow being angry with God because everything He does is good and right, but there are so many places of God's people pouring out their hearts to the Lord, saying, this is hard. I don't understand what's going on. I'm afflicted, Lord. Do you see why? You know, we think of, uh, why have you forsaken me? Those complaints before the Lord. So Hannah here is pouring out lament and grief before the Lord. It's instructive to us. That's part of it. It's not just, are you grieving? Come on, cheer up, get better. There is lament and grief. It's part of living in a cursed world, living with sin, sinful people around us. Well, Eli seems to understand what she's saying here and get a sense of the situation. Interesting, Hannah never actually tells him specifically what her petition is, but he replies this way in verse 17. Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Go in peace. The the tune has changed here. The Hebrew word for peace, you might recognize, shalom. And this seems to, at least the wording here, seems to have a sense of go in a state of peace. Go in a state of peace. And then there's Eli's own prayer. Some see it a blessing of sorts. May the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked from him. To which then Hannah responds in verse 18, she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. 
And here, just one question. I'm kind of left wondering a bit. Did Hannah go away? Was she going away being assured that her petition would be answered? That, that her prayer, it's going to be answered. It's as good as answered. Uh, we do see her face is no longer sad. So did Eli's words here, um, may the God of Israel grant your petition, did these tell her that God, yes, he's going to answer your prayer for sure? I, I can't say definitively, did she go away knowing for sure God's going to answer or she went away hopeful, peaceful, having prayed, but not sure of the ultimate result. There's kind of two ways to look at it. Number one, She's told to go in peace. And so this seems to be at least somewhat separated from Eli saying, may God grant your petition. He, he could have said, go in peace because God will grant your petition, but he doesn't say it that way. So one aspect, I think, of Hannah's renewed joy is, is simply, let's just say simply, the peace that prayer offers. So Matthew Henry, he writes this, dealing with what's the sudden change? She's eating, she seems happy. He says this, she had by prayer committed her case to God and left it with him. And now she was no more perplexed about it. She had prayed for herself and Eli had prayed for her and she believed that God would give her the mercy she had prayed for or make up the want of it to her some other way. She was at peace in praying. Secondly, though, Consider, on the other hand, here's Eli the priest who's praying for her. Eli the priest. This is the one designated for Israel, the one to go to God on behalf of the people. And so if the, if the priest is asking God to grant this request, it, it seems to bring with it a sense of expectancy that this is going to happen. This blessing is a sure thing. Now, you can wrestle over, like me, wrestle what Hannah thought, what was in her mind here, but... Just don't wrestle too long. I, I think Henry is right in seeing this, this peace that comes through prayer. And, and there's also the words of the priest himself coming to bear. May God grant your petition. But again, just stepping back a bit, what we don't want to miss here as well is God's continuing providence. The way he works things out. Hannah happens to pray near the temple. And who's there? Eli, the priest of all people, happens to be sitting there. And out of all the characters, the one seemingly closest to God says to her, go in peace, may the Lord grant your petition. It's, in a way, Hannah's prayer and her pleading, it's already being answered before Samuel ever comes. Almost instantaneously, for the Lord who closed the womb, also ordained this entire 9 through 18 here interaction with Eli the priest. Same God. And so we get to verses 19 through 20, kind of just the rest of the story. And I'll read it again. They rose early in the morning, worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. How the worship must have been different for Hannah that next morning, that next day. A worship filled with hope, filled with peace. Eventually they head home. I'm, I am thinking Panina still chided her and gave her the same kind of treatment along the way, but it's got to be different now, flavored with, I've been before the Lord. I'm going in peace. I'm going to trust Him. Sense. 
And so we read, Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Hannah had prayed this way, Lord, remember me, and so God did. He did not forget Hannah, and in due time she conceives and bears a son. And the son's name is Samuel. A name that could, if you kind of look it up, most see Samuel meaning um, his name is God or name of God. Shamu is like name, sham, name. Uh, El is God. One commentary sees here a combination of, of asking of God and hearing of God. So it's almost like maybe Samuel could, could, could be heard of God, like uh, uh, Hannah's proclaiming to the Lord, he's heard me, heard of God, which would fit because she says here, I've asked for him from the Lord. And the result of that asking, the Lord heard, God heard. And so here's Samuel. Well, we've covered in these 20 verses a lot of ground here, maybe by looking at this idea of prayer. It's brought up some other questions in your mind. Why is not my prayer answered? Or if I vowed something, would God be more prone to listen? Or maybe even just very along the lines of Hannah, I prayed so long for children, God seems so quiet. I just want to close just a couple brief thoughts on this passage a way of kind of application, thinking back towards it. The three of them here. Number one, grieve and weep. Grieve and weep with Hannah as an example. Lament and grief and sadness are okay for the Christian to experience. You don't have to go, I'm not crying, I'm not crying, everything's fine. It's, there's grief, there's lament, there's pouring out, there's year by year. Grief is good for the soul. The Psalms... We see that in the Psalms. Yes, they point us, they look up to the Lord, and that's where the grieving can go. If the grieving just kind of is, I'm just going to be sad and grieve for the sake of grieving, but grieve and let that grief be the vehicle that leads you to the Lord once again. And so the question, number two, the question here for Hannah, for us, for any praying, is he in fact the Lord? Is he the King? Our Are you willing in your life, think of your own life, are you willing to submit in your prayer life to whatever answer God gives? We know this, to ask your heavenly Father, He will not give bad things. But can you ask with even confidence that your God hears you? Remember these words from Hebrews 4. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, not Eli, No, there's a greater high priest. What's his name? Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For those in Christ, and I hope today you are in Christ, you know Him as your Savior, you've seen that you are a sinner in need of the blood He shed on the cross to save you from your sins. For those in Christ, we've got a priest far greater than Eli. And then the question is, will you accept this answer of the Lord, even if it's not in line with your desire to, to say with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Either way, blessed be the name of the Lord.
or to even echo Jesus' words that night before the cross, yet not my will, but your will be done. I would, I would rather the cup pass, but it's not about my will. Your will be done. So number three then, a question to come back to this question, where do you go? Where do you go? Where do you go when trials and troubles abound and abound they do? Where do you go? And the encouragement coming out of chapter one is to go to God in prayer. When the paninas are bearing down and, and even your own spouse can't bring you comfort as, as hard, as sincere as they might be, and that's just not there, there is only one. And so listen now, these familiar words of Philippians 4 in light of what we've been thinking on here. Let's say in Philippians 4, 6-7, through 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And what? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In the depths of barrenness, Hannah pours out her soul to the Lord in prayer. In the depths of your own trial and trouble, seek the Lord via prayer and then find His peace no matter the temporary outcome. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that because of the cross, because of Christ, we have access into the heavenly throne room. We can talk to you right now and you hear us. Lord, I especially just pray for those this morning dealing with with hard, unanswered prayer, even maybe in our midst dealing with the the childlessness, the barrenness that's almost so parallel to Hannah's situation. Father, I pray that you would give them hope to continue to pray, to seek you, to petition you, and to also rest and say, Lord, you close, you open, blessed be your name, and worship you. And then may they go in peace. Not that everything is rosy and all prayers are answered just the way we want, they want it to be, but because we know that you are sovereign. Your providence is at work everywhere. You are working all things for good of those who love you. So I pray for that encouragement for those facing unanswered in in their setup, unanswered prayer. And then for all of us, Lord, would we go often? Lord, help us. We stray so often to depend on our own skill and getting through a trial and we'll do it ourselves and we'll surely we'll figure out a way when our first stop ought to be to you and to your throne and to pray. You've given us this privilege. So I pray, I pray now, you would guide us, lead us, grow us to be a, a praying church that is dependent not on our own might and strength and, and creativeness, but dependent on you. Lead us along. Give us that peace that passes all understanding. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.